the blowout audience is uh, not custom to <laughs> technical failures. Look, they they expect high level stuff from us because we we put out the highest quality audiophile content on the network. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, Josh held a gun to my head through the screen and told me, "You must leave this as a 24-bit wave file." <laughs> or is it a wave? I can't remember what I export. It's just you know, it's the one on the right, the option on the right. Yeah, yeah, the the, the more burdensome one to create. <laughs> it's a larger file, but hey, as long as we're under two hours, we'll try our best. Yeah. So I think it's crow season. Yeah? Yeah. You getting you getting some migratory patterns as the crows fly out to the Pacific Ocean? I I don't what are they doing? I think they go north to Washington. In the but... winter? Yes. What's <laughs> <laughs> never ending to find them? Maybe they go south from Washington. They're heading but, to Cabo, bro. Yeah, probably. Uh, I don't know what it is, though. They do stick around here like a few of them do. And two days ago, I saw a gigantic migration. It was like at least a thousand birds. And just like it's so wild to watch because they're all crows are not like. I don't know. It doesn't look like geese, and it doesn't look like a school of fish. You know, like that. Oh yeah, you know, like the starlings of, when you see them all like move in the coordinated sort of motion right. together, but no one's actually the leader. Yeah, yeah. It's not that like uh, emergent like consciousness or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's 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 chaotic <laughs> watching that many crows fly, but they don't. You know, they're not running into each other. Yeah. But it's it's just like a mass of crows that are going like like everybody's on their own wavelength, <laughs> but they're all together still. Um, and then yesterday, uh, I saw two crows fight off a predatory bird midair. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool. So it's getting spooky. <laughs> spooky season. <laughs> God, it's. I guess it's been like a year since we did the crow episode, hasn't it? I know. Yeah, we've been doing this uh, podcast too long. God, I. But I saw this morning because we're on what seventy three, yeah, seventy four, and uh, seven ninety nine for IJB. Yep, <laughs> that's no thank you. And you know the the numbers got juiced a little bit when they started doing the Patreon, so they were getting two a week in there instead of just one a week. After whatever about episode five hundred, 
Yeah. They started doubling up every week, so the the numbers started, you know, the mileage started turning up a lot faster. Yeah. But we had episode still... one with Wade talking about socialism, and then henceforth has been Trump clips. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 a great feat because that's what now. God, they've been doing it for almost. 11 12 years? Yeah, it's it's at least a decade. So well, you know, we're so young. <laughs> do you think let's see how old will we be? <laughs> I'll be 41. Yeah. Uh, if we do this for another decade. I'll I'll be 49, about to turn 50. Yeah, so... that'll podcast won't exist then, right? It'll be some sort of like hologram thing. Right, where we're just, our holographic presence is just beamed into your brain, and you just see us and hear us, even though we're not actually there. It's going to be some augmented reality version of a podcast. Then it can actually, like, animate Rekapa. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And so, like, you'll be sitting on your couch, but you can look over, and it'll look like Eric's sitting next to you on the couch talking into Rekapa. Mm-hmm. It'll be like an interactive type of experience. Yeah. And then you'll be able to reach back through time and knock the box over. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty bad experience to me. <laughs> it's, it's uh, that's turning the good into thing. the new Matrix movie all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, man. The Matrix is a weird franchise. I looked up a timeline video because I'd only seen the first movie. Okay. And... Uh, there was a timeline video someone did explaining because they had like the cartoon um, and I guess like comic books and stuff. I don't know. But I think the cartoon was explaining it was like Terminator. It's like a war mm. with the machines. Yeah. And the machines were powered by the sun. So the humans decided Oh, to kill all the machines, we're going to build a shield around the earth. We scorch the sky. So the sun can't come we through. Block yeah, out something. the sky. And uh, then humans were like, wait, now we don't have any food. <laughs> it does sound like something humans would do. Like, you just figure out what is the quickest answer, but without, like, worried about any of the long-term consequences. <laughs> yeah, or it sounds like... Um, at least they did something uh, trying to find the quickest answer, uh, unlike Fauci. Yeah. Uh, no masks and a respiratory virus. That would be the quickest solution. That would be the cheapest one. But, but no. unfortunately, we didn't make any masks. So since there's no masks for the first six months of the pandemic, uh, you don't need just those. stay home. Just don't. And please don't buy a mask because, oh, my God, none of the doctors have any masks. <laughs> You can just use some cloth. You can use tell a bandana. People use cloth. I, I, scarf. I, I don't know. If you have to go to the grocery store, at least wrap your face in a scarf. But please, for the love of God, do not buy a mask because we've only been making enough to have just one backup. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no there's no redundancy to our supply chain. This is an on demand, instantaneous type of thing that we've created. If you were expecting better medical advice from one of the world's sexiest men alive, then you'd be wrong. <laughs> Did you see this? No. Oh, buddy. He won. 
Who? Trudeau? Fauci. I'm not kidding. Fauci is the sexiest man alive. Wow. I mean, if Blake Shelton can be, pretty much any of us can, right? Uh, Yeah, with that face. With that face and those country bumpkin ways and eating Pizza Hut wrapped in bacon every night. If he can be you the know, sexiest man, I can be the sexiest man. <laughs> this Fauci guy, uh, I don't know what it is about him, but he looks like my grandmother. <laughs> looks like your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Just that, Itali- just that Italian look. She's not Italian, though. <laughs> She's just from Oklahoma. She's poor. I don't know. <laughs> she originated in Oklahoma. Just- yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, like Elizabeth Warren. Exactly. Okay. Well, uh, Josh decided to have a, another blasphemous episode today. Look, I chose this episode because knowing you, Eric, as like a uh, as a guy Staunch. who's into biology and especially yes. like forensic biology type of stuff, and then also as an artist who like understands you know different mediums and you know appreciates different levels of art, I thought this would be the perfect episode for you. That's really Thank why you. I chose it. Yeah, uh, it was also a busy week, so I hope. Uh, to not let you down. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we only got, some would say we only have like 700 or so years of history to dis- discuss, but others might say we've got over 2,000 years of history to discuss. So, And they'd be wrong. I, I just, uh, I'll let you start on uh, what your thoughts are. You know, your new, more mature 31-year-old thoughts on the, the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Urine. Uh, so I think the, the kicking off point for it that is so weird is the church's, like the Catholic church's relationship with it. Catholic church, as we, most of us know, big on relics. Love some relics. You know, if it's a toe of a saint, we're going to keep that and we're going to worship it. A splinter of the cross? Maybe we got hundreds of them, and maybe they're spread all over the world, and we worship all of them. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, if the cross was just made up of splinters, couldn't Jesus have, like, broken it apart? But they didn't have plywood technology back then. Yeah. Um, uh, or or what is the—not corkboard. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever Ikea makes, where they take a bunch of shreds of trees. Oh, yeah, yeah, trees. yeah. Formica or— uh... Not Formica. That's the countertops. You're talking about particle board. There we go. Um, TC will edit this later. Yeah. Um, So there's been tons of relics. And the thing that I found pretty interesting is the church, like, has has made strong uh, statements towards the Shroud. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, They have throughout history said like and in pretty recent history too like popes in the 1900s um and then even i don't know about the current pope i think the nazi pope maybe did something i don't know <laughs> um no yeah i think uh i think francis is is on board as just calling it an icon and not a relic but they they like pope 
uh, I'm not. I'm gonna screw up all the pope names, so I'm not even gonna try. Okay. But one of the popes from, he was like there until like 53 or something. Mm-hmm. He like decided to make it a thing. Like he, he really took the shroud and was like, no, I believe this is like a very real thing. Like I don't know. It's weird because they wane back and forth. They're like. The importance of it is that it makes people think about Jesus. We're not going to say if this is Jesus or not Jesus. Um, but then others will like go there and be like, this This is such uh, evidence for holy, you know, whatever, for Jesus. Yeah, and there's a, very, there's a big emotional component to it as well. Like um, there's a thing called Jerusalem Syndrome. And um, it's it's called that because the people that go to the holy sites in Jerusalem Get hit with the, the they, headache gun. Yeah, they're they're just uh, <laughs> yeah. It's not not Havana syndrome. Okay. <laughs> Although it's that we we gotta we gotta fund a lot of uh, research and treatment for those people. Yeah, I'm I'm applying for some grants. <clears throat> um, but it's it's the phenomenon where people go to the uh, religious sites in Jerusalem. And they're overcome with emotion, like almost a uh, a spiritual reckoning inside of themselves where they just cry and weep and are so overcome that sometimes they even pass out or they faint. Um, and there is this is a thing that happens not just with like Jewish or Christian type of uh, relics or things like that. It's it's a phenomenon that happens amongst human beings when you associate like a a high importance with something that maybe you're disconnected from and you have the once in a lifetime experience to confront that thing that you've revered so much it can overload your brain and the emotional reaction in your brain becomes so overloaded that you can't function or do any of the normal operations of just you know, logical thought or, um, or any of your normal behaviors, you're, you, you're verklempt, you're overcome. And, uh, so that in a lot of these contexts in the research is when you have people who have a lot of religiosity, um, approach these relics and specifically the, the shroud of Turin, that is one of the defining characteristics to them that proves its authenticity. If it wasn't authentic, I wouldn't be so overcome with this emotion when I encountered it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of like if, uh, if God and salvation wasn't real, like I wouldn't be so compelled to go confess um, on Sunday in confessional to cleanse my soul. Like there, there's like a, a sort of feedback loop that happens in this and it happens over and over and over again, whether it's the scientists that are, you know, tasked with um, investigating it from the Vatican because they're all, even though they're scientists, they're all devout Catholics. So they kind of have this uh, confirmation bias problem and, these types of things keep showing up, even if you look at like the scientific research papers that were done on it, they pay tribute to this very emotional, anecdotal experience as if it's somehow an evidentiary piece of information. Yeah, I, I, people believe this all the time when it comes to religion, right? Yeah. Like, uh, 
my my sister was telling me uh she went to some like uh so she used to take ballet uh wow shocker a texas young girl was put into ballet and um it was like a christian school so again shocker and so they went to like a christian dance i don't know conference recital thing once and um the the theme for the conference was was um oh god why is listen i've had some late nights <laughs> um whenever christians get sucked up to heaven what is this rapture? called rapture rapture the theme was the rapture and she said that like on stage they had like a child sleeping or like praying for his parents and then sleeping and then like the lights went dark and the lights went back on and the child was gone so it was the rapture mm. but then they had also planted people in the audience who were running around shaking people like have you seen him have you seen where he's gone <laughs> <laughs> but then they immediately followed this up with with uh if you feel called to the lord come down here and we have like rings and bracelets to give you so that you can remember yeah. like this whatever and of course people just stream down there and are crying and shaken yeah because it was very scary it, they primed they um, primed your emotional response by putting you in a false state of trauma right <laughs> and then yeah, and yeah. then said here's the way to get out of the trauma <laughs> yes <laughs> um which I gotta say, I never went down to the front of a church. I'm pretty, pretty cool like that. Well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but at but, the but time, can, but can a five year old really be considered like having the agency to make these types of decisions? <laughs> yeah, I I was baptized, um, but my grandfather was a preacher who did it. If it wasn't, I don't know if I would have been baptized because yeah. I'd have been like, I don't want somebody touching me. Um. <clears throat> and of course he was he was joking about the times he knew that people had installed faulty lights and then were electrocuted <laughs> going into the uh, baptismal so that's why you want to get baptized you don't want to accidentally electrocute yourself doing some faulty light work and end up in hell <laughs> right yeah well you got that's why you need a cannonball into it mm -hmm. um that reminds me of another church this, this is such a sidetrack but my my mom's side, they started going to a church where uh, the place would, like, sell merch and, like, sell stuff yeah. for money. Uh, and at their baptisms, they didn't do it during service. They did it, like, in the middle of the week or, like, an off time uh, and sold popcorn for it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, selling stuff at church was a big deal, even though, like, you know, Jesus hated it. Uh Listen, we like every every Wednesday, you know, we'd go into the uh, uh, sort of conference room, the communion hall in First Baptist Dallas. It was like a big cafeteria where everyone would go and they, you know, feed people Wednesday night dinner. Like this place held like 5000 people for Jeez. just eating. But they would do, you know, like craft fairs and antique shop stuff and whatever in there. And it was all, you know, like uh you know, a lady made, you know, some wreath to hang on your door and it's like said he is risen on it, you know, that mm -hmm. that type of stuff. But grammatical error. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's all like uh, 
clearly just to, you know, sell to the other people at the church and everyone sort of making money off of each other. I don't know. Yeah. It seems sort of uh, blasphemous, but I guess I guess if uh, if it's condoned by the pastor, it's all good. If it's good enough for the Mormons, it's good enough for me. The uh, But the selling things at church and making money is very important to the Shroud. Because um, that's sort of the first instance of it actually showing up in any historical record. Um, so from my history research, like the earliest record is uh, from Lyrie, France, or it's either Lyrie or Lorray. I don't know how to say it. Um, <laughs> With a French accent. Yeah. The, uh, and it's, it's a, a French knight, uh, Geoffrey de Charnay. Uh, he presented the shroud to the dean of the church in Lyrie, um, and he said, this is Jesus' authentic burial shroud. So that's like the first um, mention of it ever in history, was in the 1350s in France, of this knight showing up to the church and Lyrie and saying, hey, you guys want this? It's the real shroud of Jesus. There's like no record, there's no like description of where he got it or how it came into his possession. The church doesn't like ask questions really about it, but they immediately start putting it on display. Um, and it's drawing like tons of pilgrims from all over Europe who are coming to see it and they're charging money. Like they're charging money for people to see this. Um, not only that, but this is also the period of time where the church is really trying to uh, institute these money policies of buying favors to get people out of purgatory and get them into heaven or prevent them from going to hell and get them into purgatory. You know, after they die, you can buy these favors through the through the church in order to get the priest to pray your loved ones out of out of purgatory. Um, so the church is a real big money making operation at this point. And if at you, that point, yeah, like, well, they're, they're starting to figure out how to like commodify yeah, yeah, some yeah. of this stuff. You know, it be, previous to this, it's like the Crusades, like you plunder and then you take yeah, the yeah. gold. Now we're like in a more s- civilized uh, Renaissance period where, you know, commoners even have money. So how can we separate them from their money? Uh, we got to show them these like awesome relics these things that we can commodify and then charge people for it and they're going to be so willing to even be close to it because there's also this idea that being close to a relic back then somehow imbued you with the power of that relic or if the like it it somehow like gave you this spiritual superiority like it rubbed off on you like if you got Mm -hmm. close enough to it so it's real important for these people, especially we've talked about this being a very superstitious time with when it came to medicine and health, um, people bringing uh, their sick loved ones to be close to these relics because Jesus healed people. So if I get them close enough to this relic, maybe some of that healing power will rub off on my uh, on my kid who can't walk anymore or who has a plague or whatever. Um, so there's this great incentive for the church to figure out how to monetize this. Um, and they do. And so they throw these big celebrations in Lyrie and they put this thing on display. Um, people from all over start to come and look at it. This is when the Pope, like they're, they're almost 30 years into doing these things. And the Pope is like, okay, okay, guys, uh, I'm kind of really 
you know, I'm the most pious and I think this is sacrilege to be trying to like profit off of Jesus. So I'm going to come out here and say straight up to all you that this is fake. It's not the real burial shroud. In fact, we have the person who was commissioned to do the artwork a few years ago, and he's confessed in church before God that he painted this thing. So um, I'll still allow you to display it, and you can still make money off it, but you have to say that it's not really Jesus. Like that's the, that's the exception because if you say it's Jesus and you make money off it, then that's blasphemy. But as long as you say specifically, this is just to make you think about Jesus, then it's totally fine to make money off of it. So that's the first like real instance of it. And the idea that in less than 30 years of it being in the historical record, the most powerful person on the continent comes out and says, it's not real. (laughs) Like, yeah, well, what's funny though is like. I'm wondering though, um, was there some coercion for like getting somebody to confess too? Like, there's yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it's real, uh, especially that it shows up in the 1350s. Um, no mention of it before that, like no no mention of it, and then even in the Gospels, like. Some of the gospels say that it was like individual pieces of cloth. Yeah, like he, like he was wrapped Jesus like a in. mummy, not a big piece of linen. Like the, at least in yeah. the three canonical gospels, they mention it as um, shards or shreds or strips of linen, not a shroud. Yeah, but so, that's the only mention of any linen in any of the gospels. Like they don't mention like ooh and. And uh, Mary Magdalene, when she went in the tomb, like she folded it up and kept it for safekeeping or (laughs) there's no like there's no it's not even important. Like it's not even listed in the in the few books that actually would mention it. You would imagine, um, though, she had some more important things to do. (laughs) Yeah. If she walked in and he was gone, (laughs) maybe she's not worried about the clothes. Um, But the. The like mention from first like a bishop as well to the Pope saying that it had been artificially painted. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's very interesting that they officially come out and do say that it was fake. But the thing that I find so interesting, I was like, okay, Catholic Church, tons of relics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they certainly have other relics I've heard of. You know, I went to Baylor. We learned about. Uh, how Catholics were uh, bad Christians for having relics. They got the spear. They got the spear that stabbed Christ in the side. Yeah. Hitler um, ended up with it. I got to say, taking like those Bible classes does wonders uh, for you realizing how just made up it all is. Right. Um, But there are relics in the church that are way old. Like, the crown of thorns that was on display at Notre Dame uh, that the arsonist was trying to destroy um, (laughs) with his cigarette butt. Uh, It was on display in Notre Dame and has since been moved to the Lure. But it originated in 409. Like, they've kept this now... It, of course, is, like, mentioned in text 
Um, and some of them mentioned, you know, maybe different sizes. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I don't think this is the real crown. Uh, I don't think there, you know, was a crown like, like the one that they've got on display. Um, but there is constant mention of these things and they keep track of relics. They, this like specific crown, uh, they know was like moved to the, uh, like Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Um, and they know that it was moved from there to like this other church or whatever. Like they have the ability, they had the ability back then to keep track of these things, at least in writing. Now, it appearing in 409 is, to me, very suspect um, because... But it's very similar to all the Gospels appeared in, four, in like, 482. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it certainly makes sense. Um, but also, as far as going for, like, authenticity. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of weird that the shroud that has been given so much importance uh, came about... A thousand years after they say this crown, when you would think the piece of cloth that has like Jesus's face on it uh, and butt um, <laughs> Taste, would be a tasteful butt, tasteful butt <laughs> would be just kind of like, yeah, you know, we had we got it. Um, this is not that important, though. <laughs> but it's waiting for a good time to reveal it. Yeah, <laughs> but I think through its history. It was then like, uh, you know, it was not the only piece of cloth that also had Jesus's face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of other pieces of cloth that are written about. There's paintings about them. Some of them don't exist anymore. Um, but there are also pieces of burial cloth held to have been, uh, you know, wrapping Jesus, held by at least four churches in France and three in Italy, but none of them have as much popularity as this one. Um, but it's funny because it's like during the 1300s, they said that it was not real. 1390 with Pope Clement uh, VII, mm -hmm. because they've all got to have the same name. And in 1506, Pope Julius II reversed the decision and said, no, this is authentic. Yeah. Which I think goes to kind of the Jerusalem syndrome thing, like, I'm sure if you're a pope, you believe you can have this like spiritual feeling around something. God, God and, is tugging at my heart right now. It must be real. Yeah, um, and you know, just take a take a little side journey and look into the finances of the church around this time. I'm sure that had something to do with, hey, yeah. why don't we actually say this is real? Enlightenment um, doesn't enlightenment. Uh, Martin Luther, the uh, uh, rise of Protestantism, uh, the rise of the Anglican Church. The riot, the complete divorcing of Catholicism from England, the eventual divorcing of Catholicism from the New World. Like there, there's a uh, big decline in Catholicism at this period, and uh, yeah. thing things are being challenged every day. Not just by competing doctrines of Christianity, but like now there's like all these new uh, sort of secular. Uh, ideas about maybe we can do science and figure some of this stuff out. You've got, mm -hmm. you know, early, early versions of really trying to learn some things. And um, 
if, if anything, like there's a lot of people, especially in the late Renaissance period that have this, there's a counterculture that's going on. And even when you talk about like the Leonardo and Michelangelo and all that stuff and how many, uh, you know, works they did that were either of religious depictions or for religious institutions, if you understand some of their works and some of their writings, there is a lot of tongue in cheek, a lot of um, built in examination of the piety and the hypocrisy in the church in those artworks. So there, yeah. if, if you were a person who had a little bit of a skeptical mind, there were clues all around you that maybe you shouldn't be putting all your eggs in the church basket anymore. And you certainly can't discount around this time the church was being uh, pressured politically as well. Mm. Like it is a very political institution, um, especially at this time and with the rise of England uh, becoming more powerful. Uh, you know, you've got you got your various European nations. Uh, but suffice it to say, there was a lot going on when they decided, actually, this is real. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird that it's a hundred years after they said it wasn't real. Um, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that it seems to like go through these phases where as time goes on, people are like, I'm going to revisit that because I actually like that story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know. It happens all the time. We know people that will <laughs> defend to the death um, Thomas Jefferson because he said he was very uncomfortable with slaves, even though he owned plenty. Um, <laughs> well, and that, that's the other funny thing is before the, the Pope in the 1500s declares it's real, you've got um, Descharnay, the original knight, who presented it to the church in Lyrie. Like his granddaughter ends up with the shroud. And then she uses it to sell back to the church, um, and she sells it for like two castles back to the church. And uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how the story went, but the uh, part of the deal was that um, she would have to acknowledge in the exchange that the cloth was not the authentic burial shroud. And... Um, she she later she refused to return it she refused to actually give it and took it out on her own tour and uh insisted that it was the real shroud so she was taking it out on its own tour not sanctioned by the church of europe for like uh in the 1450s and um you know basically it was like a pop tour, like a like she she was like the Lou Pearlman of the Shroud. She was taking them all around all around England and being and even though it was uh, not sanctioned by the church, people from all around were coming to see this thing. And Didn't get out of town before the cease and desist. Could. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, so at the end of that, that's when she exchanged it because the church was like, "Look, you can't keep." you can't keep going around showing the shroud to everybody when we've said that it's not real. You're, you're making us look bad, and now all these people are confused. They don't understand the doctrine anymore. And so she agreed to then sell it back to the church for, their, for them to be in charge of how it was disseminated to the people, and that's when she got the two castles. But she used, like, a 30-year period of touring it around and withholding it from the church to leverage 
her ability to then sell it back to the church so she could could get two castles for it. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. like like it it was a very savvy business move to like drum up a bunch of interest around all of Europe so that then the the Catholic Church would be like, okay, fine, we'll give you something for it. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and but. At the end of that transaction, her getting the two castles, she was also excommunicated from the church, which means she's burning in hell. Well, don't need them. Uh, Man, I had a dream about hell last night. People were getting their hair done and stuff. (laughs) I got to try and remember that later. Um, So now on to like some of the analysis of it. Yeah. Because I think that's... That's the part where people get real antsy, depending on their leaning. Um, You know, hey, if you're listening to this and you actually believe it's the real image of Jesus, (laughs) please email us. (laughs) Because uh, I can't imagine somebody believing it's the real Shroud, but they got to exist. Yeah. So the big analysis of this, I remember the 1988 like uh or 1989 big announcement after they had completed a bunch of scientific analysis and i feel like this was another one that was like on the cover of national geographic but it might not have been it might have been more of a religious magazine that was at the church but i remember it being talked about at first baptist dallas um i remember it being like uh a thing in the 90s where it was like it's it's confirmed jesus is real like the resurrection happened, we've got it all, and not only and because this was also the time where. Wait, hold on. What? In the '90s, they said it was real based off of this evidence. Yes, <laughs> and we'll and we'll get into why, but like, okay, this is the period of time, at least in the in the Baptist Church, where the Shroud of Turin was like elevated to be like the most highest level evidence of Jesus's resurrection and death being real, and also like concurrently going on at the same time was the first like satellite imagery of Mount Ararat where people thought they were looking at like old uh, images or images of an old wooden ship that was like buried in the ice and snow at the top of the mountain. And so it was like this convergence of two things. Like we were getting confirmation that everything that happened in the old Testament was actual fact and that Jesus in the New Testament was actual fact. It was all happening in the same moment. And we were it was like this moment of like jubilation in the church where finally it's not just a faith thing. We got we got all the back backings of science now is gonna is gonna set us all free and the entire world is about to become convicted in our religious um, reality. Yeah. Uh I'm sure satanic panic didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, yeah. That was going on at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm now thinking, like, this is probably why all the boomers are absolutely insane, uh, because they were getting fake news, Uh, you know, for the last 30 years. That's great. Um, But, yeah, the the 1988, like, radiocarbon dating is, is... that one's like so weird to me because people take these samples. This is the one where it it takes like a little bit of scientific literacy, yeah, to understand what's going on. Because the radiocarbon dating uh, that they did in 1988, radiocarbon dating, you take 
uh, a sample of whatever, and you measure how much uh, carbon-14 there is compared to carbon-13. And the reason for that is carbon-14 is radioactive and, um, you know, degenerates into carbon-13. My words aren't great today. Yeah. Um, We're talking half-lives. There we go. Um, By... The percentage of both, you can then know how much carbon-14 was originally there because carbon-14 occurs naturally and then degrades. And by measuring the percentages, you can see, you can place within a fairly good time frame how old the thing is. Mm -hmm. Um, Carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,700 years, 5,700 years. But I think... Whenever you talk about half-life, that's a very common phrase in science, Mm -hmm. but it it doesn't translate easily into more kind of just normal conversation because so much is focused on the word half-life that it starts to get confusing. The the point of a half-life just means... After 5,700 years, you're going to have half the amount of carbon-14 as there was originally there. Mm-hmm. And the half-life doesn't matter when you're testing the age of something. Yeah, Like, skeptics of the radiocarbon dating will be like, well, the half-life is 5,700 years. You, you, can't, uh, you can't even test anything earlier than 5,700 years. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's it's a it's an exponential decline of like degradation. Right, right. You're Every losing... 5,700 years, it loses half of its amount. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's not, not like step. in it's it doesn't mean in 11,400 years that it's all gone. It just means that now it's 25% of what its original amount was. And then it's never going to get to total zero. It's always going to be half of the previous amount. And this goes back to our quantum mechanics uh, podcast way back in the day. But the explanation that it's like a quantum reality, like uh, the the superposition and the expectation of these things means that half of them will be around. But we can't say which half are going to be around. But we know that half of them will still exist. Yeah. Yeah. So it all ties together. But the important thing to know is you can measure things younger than 5,700 years. Right. It is. And, you know, being an exponential decline, it doesn't mean that at uh, 2006, 5, 2,600, whatever, you got whatever close. half of 5,700 is. 2850. There we go. Um, I'm the math <laughs> <doesn't>, guy. <laughs> thank you. It doesn't mean that there's 75%. Like there's a smaller percentage than 75%. So over 2,000 years about, you're losing like 20% of the carbon-14 mm-hmm. or so. Uh, so it, you can still get pretty close even when they did this carbon, this radiocarbon dating um, they found that the material itself uh, originated between 1260 and 1390. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have like a little square of it. And within 95% confidence, they say this is where it existed. Uh, that's the 1988 
measurement. There have been measurements since then that have said like, well, it needs to shift like 60 years. To get uh, it into yeah, the 95% threshold. Uh, but it's around there. The problem, though, when you get other people testing these things, because there have been other tests done that have said it's even older, um, you really, I mean, we got a separation of church and state, but you got to see if these people go to church. Because right. you can be sloppy in your measurement. You can be sloppy in your cleaning procedure um, and in your confidence integrals. And again, with carbon dating, this is not like the measurements I was talking about last week where you're seeing it with a human eye, like you're running it through a computer and having it decode data. And it can be not that you're doing it on purpose, but you can be like, well, it's Jesus. He's miraculous. So we can be a little bit more loose. Let's figure out how we can skew it to the the answer we're looking for. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if it would be necessarily like consciously skewing it so much as you're well, looking for smoking guns everywhere. Exactly. Uh, and you find the mushroom cloud. Yeah. Um, so there have been measurements that have said, oh, yes, it's actually 2,000 years, which puts it right at around the time Jesus was around. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's there. These like 1988 tests were done at Oxford, the University of Arizona, um, which, you know, maybe suspect they were probably drunk when they did that <laughs> that Arizona State, uh, and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Then these other tests are done at, you know, independent labs in Italy. Mm-hmm. So, And the sample is pretty small. Like, yeah. the, there was a big controversy over where to cut. Like, the science, part, part of the science team wanted, like, the cut from the center like give us a square from the center from where the image is so that we're looking at the thing that everything is everyone is most concerned about and then uh, but it was up to a two different catholic bishops to actually decide where to get it cut and they were disagreeing with each other one was siding with the scientists the other was like no 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 we have to take it from the most you know distant edge so that we don't possibly mess up any holiness that might be attached to this relic like the furthest corner edge that you can find on this thing that's where we're going to take a little two centimeter square off of and then we're going to shred that two centimeter square up into lots of little bitty pieces and give that to these different laboratories to test so that immediate now whether it was intentional or not from the church that created controversy just in even the lab data or even the labs testing it because that immediately threw in all the room for people who want it to be the real shroud to say, well, even if they got 1350 on the radiocarbon dating, that corner was probably held by so many people during the medieval period that all of their information mm-hmm. wore off on it. And so they're really just testing stuff that it wore off onto the shroud from the medieval period or people saying that, oh, that the edges were obviously repaired from the fire that it had been back in the 1500s. And so that was actually linen that was added to the shroud as a repair thing from the medieval period. So that's why it came back like that. All that stuff is now has been refuted because this is the other thing that was really foundational in my childhood memory of this was this is when 
the big debate about radiocarbon dating being something that could be reliably used uh, as a scientific apparatus entered the the main discussion in church. Um, and then this bled over to the whole idea of the young earth, 6,000-year-old creation myth. Um, this is when you started getting the scientists who were like, well, I put a... A, a snail that I just found on the floor in a radiocarbon dating machine, and it said it was from a hundred million years ago. So it's radiocarbon dating is bogus. And scientists who like took petrified wood from the Grand Canyon and show and were like, well, this shows that this tree is only actually six thousand years old, and but it goes through all of these multiple layers of geologic time on the sidewall of the Grand Canyon. How could that possibly be? And so these were like the uh, the the things that were being used in church to try to blow holes in science. And mm-hmm. it was like it was a big deal at, at school, <laughs> at Catholic school and at my um, Protestant school that I went to for junior high and high school. Like this was taught by our science teacher as this is why radiocarbon dating is bogus by our science teacher. <laughs> so um, this, ha- even though like we can have like a conversation about this being like, oh, these are some intellectual people just trying to get down to the bottom of some answers on this very specific situation on this very specific corner of this shroud, the ramifications of even doing the analysis sent ripples throughout all of Christendom. And anyone who was part of the church even though the actual evidence from the research refutes the existence of this thing being that old, that became evidence that science doesn't work. Yeah, that's and it's funny because this is like it feels like around this time. Now, I again, shoddy memory, but uh I feel like around like the 90s, I was starting to, you know, read highlights or something Mm -hmm. and they got some science stuff in there. And the discrepancies with science and almost using science to prove like using the results from an experiment to prove that that experiment is stupid. Yeah. That feels like it has carried over culturally so strongly uh, to now, Mm -hmm. you know. It is, like, such a strong holdover from this time. And I don't know if I would say that the Shroud of Turin was the impetus for, you know, questioning things. I'm sure people thinking that they found the Ark and, um, you know, just being all over religious didn't help. But it's, it's very weird that people around this time were doing the same things that, like, when Darwin's, uh, you know, published works started getting some scrutiny in the church that they would be like, well, no, you can't explain this part. And then science would explain it. And they'd be like, well, obviously God made it so that you could understand it scientifically. Yeah. Um, but the, God all created of like, this illusion of billions of years of evolution. <laughs> to test you. Um yeah, they. I mean, the medieval repair hypothesis was one biocontamination hypothesis, carbon monoxide. My favorite 
which I guess we can get into some of the images or the image mm-hmm. on it is that they're, they said, well, uh, and then I think this relates a little bit to like the carbon dating. They're like, well, when Jesus went up to heaven, it probably let out a ton of like x-rays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's how the image formed. And that's why um, the the date is wrong because he added so much extra carbon. He, he, he irradiated the sheet. Bringing a person back to life causes them to shoot radiation out from their body. <laughs> and then yeah. that, that impresses an irradiated image of them onto linen. <laughs> and then, yeah. and that's that's how it was created. Yeah, that was a big that was a big uh, talking point. Obviously, like the only way you could get an imprint of a man on linen is if he like shot, you know, holy radiation out of his body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the well, the image in a minute, but I really want to get to too. Um, the weaving is also a huge no no. Mm-hmm. Like the the herringbone weave pattern that this linen is made out of, um, one was very common in the Middle Ages. Two, they didn't have the technology to create two thousand years ago. Yeah, um, everyone's seen like the herringbone weave. I didn't recognize it from the name, so feel free to look it up. But it's kind of like the, you know, if you've got like a twill uh, coat or sweater or something like that, you'll see that pattern where you got like a row of diagonally facing short lines and then it almost makes an arrow with the road next to it. Mm-hmm. It's like pointing the opposite direction. Um, that weave pattern is not present any in any other cloth. In 2000, they found some fragments of a burial shroud of a first century uh, rabbi or Jewish high priest Um, member of the aristocracy, so says Wikipedia. But that was just a simple two-way weave pattern. Uh, So you've got something that's, you know, around the same time as Jesus, and it is, like, not even close. Why would you, like, the people who were burying Jesus were, according to the religions of the time, uh, psychopaths, like they were, they were crazy, a religious cult. So how would they have the ability to have a weave technology better than something they would bury a Jewish high priest in? Yeah, uh, around the same time. So that I, I had never like looked into the weaving of it, but that's just like such, you know, a stark difference that I don't even. There's no rebuttal from the church. Yeah. that I've heard on that one because they're just like, well, it's Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like there's there's the weave is a huge uh, complicating factor for anyone who really wants to believe it's Jesus's shroud. But I think the bigger question when you're trying to, to figure out the authenticity of something is the the problem with the with the the stirp. Um, examination group of scientists to examine the shroud from the 70s into the 80s. One, they're all devout Catholics, even though they were quote-unquote secular scientists. Mm-hmm. Two, if you go in with the premise being, we're either going to prove this is Jesus's shroud or not, you miss the the way 
more straightforward question that you need to ask. Like instead of approaching it as this has to be Jesus, why not just approach it as, hey, Romans were crucifying thousands of people at this period of time. Um, Maybe just can we prove that this is a shroud that was wrapped around some person that was crucified by Romans in the year 30 AD around then like not don't even think it's Jesus out of all the thousands of people that were crucified around that time let's just try to say maybe this was a thing that was put around a dead person at that time and if it is a thing that would be put around a dead person from that time do the things that show up on the shroud demonstrate that it was a real human being that was wrapped in this is it and and how can we determine that like you have to at least determine those very basic premise points before you even go down the road of saying okay now was Jesus a real guy is there a way to point that this was actually Jesus versus one of the thousands of others people that were crucified and wrapped up and you know killed by the Romans uh, you can you could do like these gradient steps of confirmation before you jump all the way to the Jesus conclusion. Like you have to at least confirm some of these basic things. Mm-hmm. But instead of doing that, which shows that it's not a scientific process, instead of doing that, you immediately look for the evidence that verifies it's Jesus. Like, oh my God, there's blood stains on around the head. And so I'm going to immediately assume that those are those red in, in pigmentations are blood. And I know from my scripture that Jesus wore a crown of thorns. So that would be consistent if he had some blood spots around his head. So, yeah, that's yeah. probably uh, it's probably Jesus. It's uh, not enough blood, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. well, it's very little, very little marks. And that's that's the other that's like the big deal. Like before even. Before you even get into the argument, uh, was Jesus an actual person? Like we could have that conversation too, being that the only the only written record that shows a Jesus of Nazareth ever existing is the canonical gospels. None of the historians from the period or after the period that were in charge of keeping large volumes of libraries in Greece and Rome and Alexandria, not one mention of a guy killed by Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, he reigned in um, Jerusalem for 10 years. He had a 10-year run as as the prefect there. And there's lots of records of everything that he did while he was in charge there. Minted coins, there's bricks, there's things of his existence all over the place. Now, there is, you know, certainly he would have been putting down lots of religious insurrections and people claiming to be false messiahs because that was just a thing that was going on. Like there was a messiah at every corner preaching that the end of the world is near at that time because it was a great allegory for Rome coming into (laughs) the Middle East and taking things over. Like this is obviously the end of times that we're getting, these are, this is apocalyptic to us. So you had all of these sects of Judaism and other religions that had these messianic prophet figures that were shouting at every street corner. So Pilate probably killed lots of them, but there's no record of anyone named Jesus of Nazareth or anyone from that region during that period of time where he was the prefect in any recorded history. 
and almost everything that he did is recorded in libraries. So we, we can talk about, was Jesus even a real person? Um, but like to immediately jump to finding Jesus, um, authenticity, confirmation bias questions when you're looking at the shroud, I, I think proves that the entire, uh, stirp analysis done by these guys over a decade in the seventies and eighties was, it was a bogus fishing expedition. Yeah. Um, the image itself too, uh, it's kind of a weird one because, First off, if you look at it, you can't really see too well. Like it's, you know, it looks it looks dirty, like oily. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do a negative image where you see like the, you know, black and whatever, it it comes out a little bit more clear what the proportions are. But the first negative image was made in like 1898. Mm-hmm. So you do have a long period of time where people are like, and it Wait, was derided really as see. blasphemous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you can really see all of the details and blah blah blah. The thing that really stands out, though, and the thing that people have pointed out, and the church is like, "Well, it's Jesus," so back off. Um, the proportions are like pretty messed up. <laughs> Like one arm is longer than the other one and the fingers are gigantic. Uh, The forehead is like too small if it was actually wrapped over the top of somebody. Like it looks totally weird. Um, You know, if they didn't have the back side as well on the shroud, I would immediately think, oh, this was just meant to like be a decoration and hang up in a church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then somebody got the wrong idea. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like, well, the totally back is like off. taller than the front too. Y- yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the back image is like two, 2.15 meters tall. And the front image is like 1.89 meters. The, the distance of the eyebrows to the top of the head, they claim is just non-representative. It's just like that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's very funny when you start looking at the actual image because it is off. Um, well, and that and that the reasons it's off is for modesty reasons. Like, uh, yeah, you have such incredible detail of like the face and like the lashing wounds on the back, but then like no, you have like uh, there's a slight view of a of buttocks but we don't want to like put the crack there and stuff like that because that would be too you know decency here guys and the fact (laughs) that you had to like extend his arms from the elbow to the hands to be grossly not proportional so that his hands would conveniently cover his genitals because you wouldn't want to see jesus's penis (laughs) he had to like have his hands lay down flat on your back and see if you can have your elbows at your sides and then put your forearms at like 30 degree angles and see if your hands cover your dick. I I bet you they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's great is that all of these like features and this like these proportions and everything match gothic art styles. Mm-hmm like around the 1300s it is that's like how some stuff looked back then um there's 
you know, they, they, this is another one, the analysis of it to see if it's like actually pigment or something supernatural or blood or blood. Of course, the church doesn't want you to cut out squares in the middle of the image. Um, I'm sure a pinky toe could go, but no. Uh, so instead they like have taken, I think like 32 samples in the first measure, you know, first experiment where they just put tape over this, the stain and then pull it off and whatever fibers come off there, they can test. And everywhere you read about it, they're like, there's no pigment anywhere on it. The test found micro pigment particles. Yeah. (laughs) It's consistent with the types of uh pigmentation that would be used with paints back in the 1300s like not modern oil paints or acrylics of course those things weren't there <laughs> yeah <laughs> you don't have a petroleum based <laughs> paint solution but it's it's so funny because this is one thing that like every article gets wrong they say there's just there's no pigment Every measurement has found zero pigment when the first measurements found pigment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the pigment, though, is kind of interesting because it is it is like micro pigments. It's very, very small particles. Yeah. And there's the there is the interesting fact that the image is just saturated on the very surface level of the thread. It's not, you know, so like if you painted this linen you did it in such a delicate way that you did not saturate the threads so that it soaked through the threads or completely like uh, saturated both sides of a thread. It's just the surface facing side of the thread where where the pigment shows up. But the interesting thing about that is in 2009, uh, this one professor of organic chemistry uh, in Italy has like devoted his life to proving that the the shroud is fake, which is, you know, uh, God love him. Um, (laughs) But taking technology uh, from the Middle Ages, which was a a bas relief uh, for all of our art heads out there, a relief is like the, you know, on the Pantheon. Mm -hmm. Something, you got something flat and it's like a carving into it. It's making a stamp. Uh, yeah, kind of. It's like uh, you know, it's a it's a sculpture but like a flat sculpture. You know, you got some depth to it. It was like the first thing that they made at least this is my remembering from art class in college was like the idea was that you would make these reliefs such that then you could put you know, paper or fabric over the top of them and then you could like we used to do when we were kids, you know, you'd put like a penny under the under the surface of paper and then you'd scrape over with the edge of your pencil to get the imprint, imprint you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to mass produce like a bas relief, the idea was like you could make the relief and then people could, you know, make these etching rubbings over the top of it and then you would mass produce that image and then people could have it other places, you know, if they could keep a copy in their house or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so this taking this bas relief sort of clay sculpture process that not only existed in the Middle Ages was, as you're saying, popular. <laughs> it was used. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
This guy has replicated the shroud pretty much. He's made like you make a bas relief of the face, which so you make a clay sculpture of it. Then you lay linen over the top of it and take pigment. Um, you know, when they say like painting and stuff, it's not paints. It's like, yeah, because that would that would soak through the cloth and look really weird. Um, you, but the way that you used to make paints is you would have the pigment, the powder. Mm-hmm. And if you just take that with like almost like a like makeup sponge kind of thing and dab over the top of it, you get the exact same look and proportion yeah. as the shroud currently has. The He puts it in his uh, scientific oven. He calls it his, his Turin machine. Um, <laughs> Not Which not is, you know, not not to the great computer scientists. No, um, and he or I, yes to the to I thought you said something else. <laughs> I'm not listening today. Um, and he essentially ages it like 600 years and washes it, and the the pigment like scorches into the fibers. You do have some pigments that stay there, and it's been washed out to replicate the wear and tear yet the pigment is still there Mm -hmm. um and it looks the exact same like you know he's then able to like paint the blood onto it but when you think back and they exposed it to like because the 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 shroud's gone through like two fires and like a bunch of other Mm -hmm. stuff and and they like know for a fact that it was stored in a silver box and the church caught on fire in France where it was being stored and some of that silver melted into molten silver and the molten drops dripped onto the folded shroud and like burned through it, which is why you get those uh, burn marks that are, um, uh, you know, symmetrical across it because it was burned when it was folded up. And so, so they know that the shroud has been had to endure these extreme conditions and the uh, pigmentation and the image of the man uh, has not degraded in those extreme conditions. And one of the things that the bas-relief um, study showed was that in the in this simulation that the imprinted image would last in those extreme heats of like up to 500 degrees, the same that you would encounter in a fire and stuff like that. In this example the image is not degraded if it has to go through those extreme environments like the actual shroud did. Yeah. And what I keep thinking about too is in the 1300s, I cannot imagine that they were that critical looking at it and going, wow, the pigment's really bright on this. Yeah. (laughs) Like it wasn't until recently that, you know, even just parishioners could see it. So it's very faded now, but I don't, you know, it doesn't have to have been that faded that many years ago. Right. Uh, They recently, you know, have put it in an argon chamber, but it existed for so long just being actually handled by people. Yeah, just draped over a balcony out in front of the church for thousands of people to walk by and rub their hands over and weep and cry into and rub their tears on. and Because literally they thought that any of the holy Jesus power, if they touched it, would rub off on them and, you know, heal what ailed them. You know, maybe that's why the butt is missing. People <laughs> thought that was a good luck spot. They're just grabbing Jesus' ass every time yeah. they walk by. 
the the one nice that I liked slap. the most on um on research of the people that were trying to figure out how it was created, I watched a um uh documentary special. This was back from like 2002 or something like that. But it had this guy um Nicholas Allen and he's like really into photography. And he in a room showed where he like had a a cadaver that was like positioned the same way that the the body in the shroud is with its arms in front of it and tied up and it had like the same beard and the same head and he had that hanging from a beam in the middle of a room where the light where the the window was a west facing window so as the sun would set in the afternoon the sun would beam through that and it would go through um a lens obscura and and there would be a inverted image of that man um, hanging on a linen sheet that he had hung on the back wall. And he showed that with 1300s technology, you can basically make a photographic image of this person on a piece of linen using this format of basically long exposure, where... You, you leave it in there for a couple days so that every time the sun is setting, the light passes through the lens, projects the image of the guy onto the linen, and over enough time of exposure to the light, that image will be um, absorbed onto the linen. And he used uh, he showed that you could use silver bromide, which is just a powder, and it was easily available in the 1300s, and you dust that on top of the linen sheet, and then you you hang the sheet, and so then the image gets uh, gets it stays on there just like a photograph. When you develop a photograph, the image stays on the sheet, even after you wash it, even after you do things to it. The silver bromide that has been projected upon with light stains the sheet there with that pigmentation. Um, and he showed how, you know, you could do both sides. But one of the things that was interesting about that is you might get weird proportions if, like, the body slightly sways as it's hanging from the rafters. Or, you know, if there's cloudiness that is, uh, the there's dust in the air that is in between the image and the sheet that the light is projecting through could cause little distortions which might account for why like uh, the proportions are off. If you actually, you know, used a photograph, uh, one of the first ever photographs ever recorded, if you were doing it, um, that would make like the forearms look a little longer than they were if the, if the guy was swinging a little bit or swaying a little bit when the image was being taken. So I thought that was pretty cool. But the fact that he showed that uh, you could basically do photography in the 1300s and they had all the stuff they needed to do and there's like archaeological evidence of the lenses and everything from the time so that all that stuff exists and he showed and he made a replica that looks exactly like it and also has the three-dimensional scanning quality to it when you put it in the 3d scanner where you take the 2d image and reflect from the shadows to bring out the 3d look the holographic look to it it does the same thing it doesn't end up getting uh distorted or look weird yeah haven't they made like a 3d printed jesus from the shroud too yeah yeah that was uh, 
I think that was like a history channel program like a decade ago or something where uh, they were trying to what did what did the real Jesus look like and I think they used like a uh, a 3d printed image off of the shroud in order to to try to come up with the face and like a artist put clay over the top of it and you know some pubic hair for the beard right <laughs> had to call Clarence Thomas for that though <laughs> he was so white. um but uh i think i mean that wraps up like all of my investigation i'm convinced thank you for changing my ways (laughs) unlike shroud.com which is trying to convince me otherwise yeah that's the other thing is um researching any of this there is such a vested interest by the religious historical movements, whether it's through the Catholic Church or through Protestant um, missions, this thing is held as so high in regard by Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists, uh, Presbyterians. It's not just a Catholic deal. And so anytime you're doing research on it, it's kind of hard to filter through all of the... uh, the the religious leaning takes that are coming at it from a faith-based angle and using that faith to dismiss any scientific analysis. Um, th- in, in fact, they kind of get buried, um, you know, in the Google searches and the things when you're trying to research on it. And there's been so many documentaries and so many TV programs and so many things where because of the nature of it, they're like, we got to, you know both sides of this thing and so then you get like uh all these uh priests uh kind of pretending to do science and then they always kind of end with the uh well you can't prove a negative i can't prove that this is the actual shroud but you can't prove that it's not the actual shroud and it's like what that okay that's not science. You, you're not supposed to be proving negatives. That's exactly not the way this works. Um, but I feel like it's still, I don't know, for a lot of people, it's probably, that's convincing enough to them. If they come across like one piece of uh, of journalism like that or one TV show they watched about it and, you know, they it's kind of like flat earth or something like you can't prove it's not flat type of thing. I, I I don't know. It's it's discouraging when I was doing the research about how much effort is put into burying any of the actual scientific analysis and instead promoting all of the faith-based analysis. Yeah. I mean, it's once you think of like the bass relief structure too, it totally falls apart in my opinion. Cuz it's just like like the face showing, as you're mentioning, like the beard and everything like that, like that would not, that would be pressed against the face, yet it's the most prominent feature right, right. on the face. It's like you find that there's all of these things that make it look really weird. Um, but whenever you try and just mention those things, they, if, they get all antsy about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're like, no, we that can't be true. So there's so much suppression of it that it's just, um, it's a fun, discouraging thing. Right. Because <laughs> it's, 
it's like, okay, this is stupid. Like, what are we doing here? <clears throat> but uh, I guess the good news and my final note is that um, the shroud hadn't been displayed. No one had actually seen it, put actual eyes on it since 2015 until last year when, you know, COVID was hitting Italy really hard. You remember how, like, COVID hit Italy really hard, like, first? Remember all those stories <laughs> from early Yeah, how are they doing now, though? Um, and we were like, oh, no, is is America going to end up like all of the triage situation in Italy? And we were like, oh, no, that'll never happen. And, and then it didn't happen, and no one in America died. Remember how that all happened? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, in the darkest moments of Italy, you know, being in the throes of the first wave of COVID-19, um, the Pope commissioned for an actual uh, Zoom, it's sort of like a Zoom viewing of the Shroud of Turin to rally the hopes and, I guess, immune systems of the people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So to give, because there was so much despair they were seeing with all their loved ones die of a of a virus, he was like, you know what these people need? They need a Zoom meeting that shows them the shroud. So we're going to give it to them because they haven't seen it in five years. And this will this will stop the pandemic. And it worked. The pandemic ended right then. Well, thank you, Pope. Yep. He's always looking out for us. Yeah. Um, good for him, you know. <laughs> Maybe we could convince him to sell just one chandelier. Uh for a good cause, but I don't know. Oh man, he needs it to communicate. Yeah, so uh, that's pretty much it for me. I did look up a lot of crazy fun stuff on crucifixion, um, just like the methodology of it and how it was done, um, which you know also kind of flies in the face of some of the wounds and things that are shown in the shroud, uh, because there's really there's really only two archaeological evidences of people that had been crucified where they've recovered their remains and they can see the wounds on their bodies mm-hmm. only two in the entire archaeological record even though we have like historical records of thousands of people being crucified you know in ledgers and stuff from the romans and the greeks and everybody but the um in the two people that have been found who were crucified uh no no nail wounds in hands or wrists. They were not na- they were tied they are evidently tied by their arms, not no nails or puncture wounds yeah. in anywhere in their arms. The only puncture wounds they had were in their heels and um going sideways through their heels. So like uh you're you would straddle the the vertical beam so like it would go between your legs and your feet would go to either side of it kind of like riding a motorcycle. And then they would pin your heels through the side of the of the vertical beam. And then they would put like a a giant wood washer on the outside of your heel where the nail would go through so that you couldn't just like slide your foot off the nail. Mm-hmm. But the the reason why there's not very much archaeological evidence for any of these things is because at the time, iron was such a rare commodity. You know, you were using most of it to, like, make weapons. Um, so any nails that were used to crucify people were recycled. Um, the only reason that they know this is because the 
people that they found, the two people that they found archaeologically who were crucified, one had the nail still in his foot because when they nailed him, the nail hit a knot in the wood and it bent the nail, the tip of the nail, so that it could not be reused. So when they buried that guy, they just left the nail, you know, in his foot because they weren't going to be able to reuse that one. Um, so th- that's also another reason why leaning there, there might've been some people that were nailed through the arms, but because of the scarcity of iron and the scarcity of nails and the amount of recycling you would be doing with those materials, likely that they would just tie their arms to either side or tie the arms above the head. And then you only did the support nails on the feet to keep them from falling off. Yeah. I, I need to look up how the crucifixion actually looked because I remember from a young age when they were like, yeah, he had holes in his hands. And then people are like, yeah, that would just rip right out if he was <laughs> being supported by that. Yeah. Like even the this like shroud.com, it's like, well, the nails had to go through the wrist because it, the hand could not support the body weight. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the wrist could also not support the body weight. Yeah, I think if you get it like what is the ulna and the what's the other one? Radius. Mm-hmm. The, if you got like right between those. You know, if you were able to not actually break the bone, but you just went through the flesh and those two bones in your forearm were on either side of the nail, it might be able to hold you up. But you got all these tiny bones. Yeah, like yeah it like ripped through your hand or whatever. I think, especially watching the couple documentaries, I think the hand and the nail stuff is more about... One, the canonical gospels being like, and, you know, doubting Thomas had to stick his fingers in Jesus's wounds in his hand to believe that it was really Jesus resurrected. And that was like the proof that everyone needed in order to know that he actually came back from the dead. And that's why you get salvation and why you get to go to heaven. So that's really important. It's like a really important detail. But But two, anyone even, you know, going back... 2000 years would have had the experience of knowing that if you had had an injury on your hand or from farming or anything that the collection of nerves that are in your hand especially at the base of your hand are like the if if they get punctured or cut they're like the most painful things to have happen Mm -hmm. to you and so to really like gin up the suffering that Jesus did for all of us. You had to show that he encountered not only the worst form of execution, that's where we get the word excruciating from, the crucifixion, but they they amped it up by driving nails through the most sensitive part of the body and so that he was like stuck in this loop of the nerve reactions of those most sensitive nerves like firing off and you couldn't get away from that pain. I think that has to do something with it. Yeah, I would just imagine his arms would be tied up and then they did that for fun, I guess. I don't know. Um, But yeah, maybe we can look into the crucifixion. I was actually looking up the other day why, uh, why are wooden stakes used to kill vampires and quite a few different theories. The original theory was the stake wasn't used to kill the vampire. It was used to like pin the vampire down Mm. so that you could kill it. 
Um, so then you wait for the sun to come up, and he's pinned to the ground, and then when the sun comes up, he dies. That, or I guess, you know, you could probably just chop off the head, in my opinion. But uh, then it later evolved to um, only pieces of wood that were, you know, used in the crucifixion of Jesus could kill him, <laughs> and then it transformed into, well, Jesus was killed on wood, so... And and vampires, Satan. Jesus is a vampire. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. (laughs) He drinks blood. Uh, We drink blood because of it. I don't know. uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah. But everybody watch uh, What We Do in the Shadows. (laughs) All right, man. That's all I've got. Until next week. Ooh, wait. Next week? Is that... October 1st? Is it? How many days are in September? 30. There we go. Being published on October 1st. 10-1. All right. We'll figure out something very fun, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. (laughs) All right. Talk to you next time. Bye.